0: Good evening, everybody. Um, Welcome to the Marion Cultural Centre. Thank you for coming this evening. It's a little brisk outside, lots of jackets in here tonight. You'll be nice and warm. There's lots of us to keep each other warm. Um, My name is Jane Webster. I'm from the Marion Library Service. Tonight we have Hugh McKay with us, whose new book, Australia Reimagined, has just been released. Hugh is a social researcher and the author of 17 books, including most recently, The Art of Belonging and Beyond Belief. He's a Fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and the recipient of several honorary doctorates from Australian universities. Later this evening, you'll have the opportunity to purchase Hugh's books, thanks to Booked at North Adelaide. Please join me in welcoming Hugh.
1: Thank you, Jane, and good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be back in the Marion Cultural Centre. This is positively my last book about the state of the nation. Uh, not my last book, but uh, my, my last book of social research. So I've poured my heart into this one. Um, before I say anything about the book, though, um, have any of you been overseas in the last couple of years? Ah, a much-traveled group. Uh, can you remember what you said when you got home? Hmm. best country in the world why why would anyone ever want to live anywhere but here Uh, that's pretty much what we all say when we get home isn't it we don't always acknowledge that that's exactly what Belgians say when they get home from a trip uh, to some other country it's what Nicaraguans say it's what Danes say and Canadians even New Zealanders say that Uh, the pull of the homeland is very strong the place where you were born or have adopted as your homeland obviously seems to you like the only place to be. Even there are millions of Syrians wanting to get back to Syria and we've seen on our television screens pictures of what they'll be greeted with if they get back to some of those cities and towns. Of course the difference with us is we can tell you why Australia is the best country in the world. (laughs) Uh, And there are seven things we we often say about ourselves as though this this is our sort of bragging list. For example, we have a robust parliamentary democracy. Some people are laughing. (laughs) Well, it's become a bit less robust, hasn't it? Um, uh, We've been replacing prime ministers at an unsustainable rate. Uh, We haven't had a prime minister who's actually lasted the full term of of a government since 2007. We still have to wait and see whether the present incumbent will last uh, the full term of this government. Um, it's got to the stage, I understand, where paramedics can no longer ask people who is the Prime Minister when they're trying to <laughs> test, test your cognitive function, because <laughs> a lot of us can't remember. Uh, Well, we don't brag about our parliament and our political institutions as we once might have, if we ever did. But 75% of Australians, in a survey published last year, 75% said they were disillusioned with politics in Australia. Only 39% think that our system is the best there is. So perhaps we put a question mark beside that point. The second point on my list uh, when I prepared this a few weeks ago was we have a sound and stable financial system underpinned by the four banks. (laughs) Well, we're putting a question mark beside that at the moment, aren't we? In the Royal Commission we're hearing almost daily revelations that um, surprise some of us, disappoint, sadden, anger some of us. And even before the Royal Commission, you'll remember perhaps late last year, a federal court judge uh, talking about uh, the fact that the ANZ and the NAB had both um, been found to be manipulating the bank bill swap rate, said the public should be shocked and indeed disgusted by the behaviour of those two banks in particular, and they've since been joined by the Commonwealth, uh, guilty of the same offence. Well, that's politics and, <laughs> and that's the banks, that's two of our institutions, uh, but that's sort of the tip of the institutional iceberg. If, if you look at contemporary Australians' attitudes towards most of the institutions that we once respected or put our faith in, there's a cloud over many of them. What will we say about the churches? Not just in the light of the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, in institutions but other uh, signs financial and otherwise of an institution that seems more about preserving its own position than serving the community Uh, the mass media um, um, big business Uh, the 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 edelman global survey of attitudes toward big business showed last year all around the western world all, all around the world Um, attitudes towards big business were in decline, um, uh, declining respect, but the biggest drop was in Australia. Uh, Trade unions, professional sport, uh, wherever you look, um, uh, institutions in Australia are under a cloud. Now, it's perhaps worth just taking a step back and thinking about the nature of institutions. Why do we always have? Every society has its institutions. And we create those institutions in order to preserve our values, in order to create a framework for our way of life, uh, and also to do cooperatively and collectively things that we can't do individually, like run an education system or uh, run a financial system or run a parliamentary democracy. We have to uh, collaborate. Uh, and do those things collectively. So when we feel as though institutions have lost sight of the fact that they are really ours, that they, they came into existence to serve us as a community, naturally we're disappointed or even angry. And when we see signs of institutions that have become so big and so powerful that they seem to have been corrupted by their own power in just the way individuals can be corrupted by their own power, uh, naturally it goes beyond disappointment to quite serious disenchantment. Well, back to our bragging list. Uh, one thing we like to say about ourselves is this is the land of the fair go. And many of you might feel that it's been the land of the fair go for you. You wouldn't say that if you were an asylum seeker who'd come here by boat. You wouldn't say that if you are an Indigenous Australian. Uh, You probably wouldn't say that if you're a woman who's still hoping for true equality, especially in the workplace. Uh, And you certainly wouldn't say it if you found yourself on the wrong side of the growing income inequality gap in Australia. Uh, It's very hard to imagine what's going on on the other side of the gap from the side that you're on. Uh, it's hard to imagine, for example, that there are two million a little over two million Australians living in poverty that about eight hundred thousand that includes about eight hundred thousand australian kids it 's hard to reconcile with what we think of ourselves as an affluent society the fact that sixteen percent of dependent children in Australia currently lack reliable regular access to safe and nutritious food. Did you know that? 16% of our kids. So the fair go is a bit of a flexible concept. Well, we like to say we're a well-educated population, and of course we are, by world standards, a well-educated population. We now have more young Australians in university uh, education than ever before in our history. Many of of those universities are world-class institutions, no doubt about that but when it comes to our school education situation, it's disturbing to say the least. UNICEF did a survey last year of the school education systems in the world's 41 richest countries, and we're on that list. We ranked 39th out of the 41 countries for our educational performance, and in particular uh, for the wide gap that exists in Australia between the high performing, uh, high functioning schools and the poorly performing, low functioning schools. Ken Boston, a name that'll be familiar to many of you, former Director General of School Education in South Australia and then in New South Wales and a member of both the Gonski Committees, I think. Uh, he, he went on record recently as saying, the present quasi-market system of schooling has failed. We are on a path to nowhere. Now, Ken Boston uh, is perhaps our most highly respected education administrator and educationalist, so you don't take remarks like that lightly. And I guess what he's saying is that because of the nature of our present school funding arrangements, education has become a great social divider in Australia. Public education which used to be the proud symbol of the Australian egalitarian dream, is no longer a symbol of egalitarianism. Uh, Public education is languishing in a system which is pouring $12 billion of public money per annum, $12 billion into non-public schools. So obviously uh, many of the public schools are suffering suffering And that helps to account for the huge gap between what's happening at the top and what's happening in the bottom, with the effect that our overall school education standards have been steadily slipping. Well, we like to pride ourselves on our low level of unemployment. And if you believe the statistics, our level of unemployment is pretty impressive. Um, Then you remind yourself that in our system you count as employed if you have at least one hour of paid work per fortnight. Uh, so we really need to think about not just employment, un- unemployment but also underemployment. And then we're talking about two million Australians who are, either have no work or much less work than they want. Uh, we like to brag our hi- about our high rate of home ownership and for a long time uh, that that continued to rise. It got up to very close to 75% of Australians owning their own home. But it's been falling steadily over the last 15 years or so. It's now well below 70% and still falling. In fact, our housing market is a very strange beast at the moment, as we all know. It's heavily distorted by incentives for investment, such as negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions for investors, while it's getting harder and harder for young families to buy into the housing market. And yet, another quirky thing about our housing market, on census night in 2016, we discovered that there were one million dwellings in Australia standing empty. So, there's no shortage of houses in Australia. There's just something funny about the way we're distributing them. And of course, tonight around Australia, a minimum of 100,000 Australians will be homeless. Well, perhaps one thing we can say <laughs> about Australia is we have these beautiful natural resources uh, and some of the world's most livable cities. Well, our cities used to be more livable, and they go to Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. Adelaide is still pretty much, uh, well, even Adelaide peak hour gets a bit chaotic, but certainly in Sydney and Melbourne, chaos and congestion uh, on the roads are so so great now that it's hard to see how you could call them livable cities. But even when it comes to our natural resources, what if I say Great Barrier Reef? Uh, what if I say Murray-Darling Basin, especially in South Australia? Uh, what if I talk about the rate of stripping of native forests, especially in Queensland. Uh, What if I talk about the rate of species extinction? So there are plenty of things about us that it's harder uh, to brag about than it used to be. But I should pause to say, in spite of all this, uh, I am a staunch patriot and I'm sure you're all staunch patriots. But patriotism shouldn't be blind and it shouldn't be feeble. Uh, a true patriotism should be able to withstand occasional confrontations with some pretty challenging facts about contemporary Australia, such as the ones I've mentioned. Uh, we are, at this moment, according to various uh, authorities, over-medicated, overweight, financially over with record levels of household debt. According to the Adelaide Institute of Sleep Research, we're sleep-deprived. And that's uh, largely because too many of us are up all night staring at smartphones and other devices. Uh, Some, especially younger people, sleeping with them under their pillow, as I recently discovered. Um, We also, this this is a grim thing about us, we have the highest rate of sexual assault in the world. Well... Uh, I think enough of the negative side of the ledger. There are, there are plenty of things to brag about, aren't there? I mean, we, we, have, we are world champions at cultural diversity producing harmony. We, this is a remarkable society when you compare us with other places on earth for bringing people here from more than 180 different birthplaces around the world and making it work and, and producing an extraordinarily harmonious society, so harmonious that if there are outbreaks of racism or ethnic tension, you hear about them, they make the news because they're so unusual in the context of this Australia. And of course we're famous for our innovativeness, everything from the invention of zinc cream uh, to the hydro, snowy uh, hydroelectric scheme. Uh, All points on that spectrum, we've we've done some remarkable stuff. Uh, We have a world-class census, don't laugh, 2016 was a bit of a wobble, but actually Australia is the gold standard. The Australian Bureau of Statistics is really a national treasure. Uh, We have our incredible uh, network of public libraries, of which this is a wonderful example. What what an incredible resource we've created for ourselves uh, through that library network. By world standards, we have a generous social welfare system, not as good as some, uh, but better than most. And even Federation itself, bringing six sovereign states and two territories together and uh, making it work for at least 100 years in spite of occasional grumblings from the West, uh, that's an achievement. And of course there's all the individual stuff. We win our share of Nobel Prizes and Olympic gold medals and Oscars and so on. So if you really want to find things to brag about, there are plenty. But let's let's stop weighing up the ledger of Australian pros and cons, and let me bring you to what is really one of the central themes of this new book, because I want to share with you what I think are the two most significant facts about contemporary Australia. Fact number one is – and by the way, these facts we have in common with most Western societies, not all, but most of the societies we compare ourselves with, you could say – this of them as well. Fact number one, we are suffering a mental health crisis. We have anxiety, diagnosable anxiety now in epidemic proportions. What's the number? Well, Beyond Blue tells us last year two million Australians were suffering anxiety disorders and a further two to three million were suffering depression and other forms of mental illness. They're estimating that one in three of us will experience some form of mental illness in our lifetime. Now imagine if this was an illness that was not silent and invisible the way mental illness generally is and anxiety generally is. If it was something that had physical manifestations we'd be much more steamed up about the need to do something about such an epidemic. But this one escapes our attention. It does cast, though, a very dark shadow. Between 65 and 70,000 Australians attempt suicide every year. That's how many of us, that's the, that's the size of a big regional city, that's how many of us every year are deciding we've had enough. So that's fact number one the mental illness crisis, but specifically I want to address the epidemic of anxiety. Fact number two, we are a more socially fragmented society than we've ever been in our history. Uh, I have to justify that statement, of course, but I can justify it very easily and very quickly because you all know why we're a more socially fragmented society, uh, because you know the kind of social changes that have been taking place leading to a more socially fragmented society. You know, for example, that our households are shrinking. The average Australian household now contains 2.5 people. I don't see any .5s in the audience. Um, but one, in the last census, one household in four contained just one person. And the rate of shrinkage is such the ABS is, is predicting within the next 15 years or so it'll be one household in three that will contain just one person. Now that doesn't mean that all those people are lonely. It doesn't mean that in every third household there'll be a person who's languishing uh, from the experience of social exclusion or isolation, but it does mean the risk of that is greatly increased in a society when so many of our households uh, have shrunk to just one or two people. Uh, Between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages are failing. That's a highly fragmenting phenomenon, not just for the couples that are splitting, but for their families, their friendship groups, their local neighbourhoods that they're moving in and out of. One of the consequences of that, of course, is we have a million dependent kids living with just one of their natural parents. And half of them, half a million kids, another fragmenting effect, migrating once a week or once a fortnight may be happening in your family from the home of the custodial parent to the home of the other parent. Uh, We're a more mobile population than we've ever been. We move house on average now once every six years and we're also more mobile in the sense that we have virtually universal car ownership and we tend to go everywhere uh, locked in our little capsules. Uh, You see your neighbour leaving or arriving home in the car and you wave at the car, you assume your neighbour is driving. Uh, but it's not quite the same as having a chat on the footpath, uh, which you might have done if, uh, if we weren't locked in our cars. We're increasingly busy, of course. Everyone's busy. Have you noticed that? I mean, You can't admit to not being busy. Uh, how are you going? Busy? We say to each other as a form of greeting, as though, are you dead or are you busy? Uh, uh, <laughs> And, and if you've retired, some of you may have retired and you know that now it is absolutely obligatory to say, uh, since I retired I'm so busy I don't know how I ever found the time to go to work. <laughs> what a pity we can't just say, actually I'm having a terrific time, I'm really cruising for a while. In fact a, a father of a friend of mine uh, recently did retire and when people asked him what he was doing he said, I'm a human being, not a human doing, <laughs> which is not a bad answer. Uh, But the more busy we are, the less time we have for engaging with our local neighbourhoods and communities and the less energy we have as well. Uh, And then, of course, there's our famous embrace of the information technology revolution. More and more of us are spending more and more time interacting with screens and, and we're trapped in a paradox. On the one hand, this stuff promises to make us more connected than ever At the same time, it makes it easier than ever to stay apart from each other and to settle for a tweet or a text or a Facebook post rather than a face-to-face encounter. We're getting used to the idea that you can communicate without that one ingredient that we used to think was crucial for human communication, namely human presence. But we're getting used to the idea that it can just be done by digital impulses on a screen. Well, I won't go on with that list. Um, We've done all that to ourselves, of course. I mean, it's not as though someone has made us more socially fragmented. All of these changes which we've participated in cumulatively uh, have the effect of increasing the risk and the reality of social fragmentation. Uh, Obviously, such changes do put great pressure on the stability and the cohesiveness of local neighbourhoods and make people feel less physically and less emotionally secure in the places where they live if they're not engaged with, if they're not connected with the other people who share that neighbourhood with a resulting uh, lowering of feelings of trust between uh, neighbours. Uh, Social fragmentation also contributes to a rise in Individualism. I think you could say we're a rampantly individualistic culture at the moment, the me culture, uh, reinforced, of course, by all the messages that come to us from consumer mass marketing and from the happiness industry, uh, t- telling us that it's all about me and my stuff and my right to personal happiness and so on. Well, I said we were t- I was talking about two facts. I'm sure you've already worked out that I'm really only talking about one fact. If a society becomes more socially fragmented its anxiety level will rise. Now there are many specific causes of anxiety in individual cases. Some people will say well it's cause of job insecurity or rent stress or relationship breakdown or loss of faith or addiction to an IT device. And so all those things uh, contribute to this. But when you're talking about an epidemic, When you're talking about, in any given year, two million of us suffering uh, from anxiety of a serious kind, obviously we have to look at the society rather than at the individual to see what causes might be operating. And here's where it seems to me social fragmentation is the chief culprit for the very obvious reason that we as a species are social animals like most of the other species on the planet Earth. Uh, We need each other. It often seems as though the most interesting thing about us is the differences between us, but actually the most significant thing about us is our common humanity. The fact that we are all in this thing together and we have much more in common because we're human. Uh, than we have differences between us. We're communitarians by nature. We need herds, groups, gangs, communities to belong to, to nurture us, to sustain us, and, and to give us our sense of identity. You can't make sense of who you are without a context. Who you are is who you kick around with, who your family is, who your friends are, who needs you, Uh, who works with you. That's how you define uh, your sense of identity. So when we're cut off from the herd, when we do feel more socially fragmented and individually perhaps more socially isolated, uh, that is bound to raise our anxiety level. That's why in our criminal justice system, solitary confinement is the worst punishment we can think of, cutting someone off from the herd. Now that's why there are medical professionals and psychologists uh, here in the US, in in Europe, now coming to identify loneliness as one of the great challenges of the contemporary West. That social isolation, I'm quoting a a prominent uh, American psychologist who said at the last year's convention of the American Psychological Association. Social isolation is now a greater threat to public health than obesity. Uh, In other words, when people feel isolated, cut off, not integrated, as if they don't fully belong, there will be mental health consequences. So the tragedy of contemporary Australia is that we don't seem to have fully grasped what's happening We're not always living as though our own health depends upon the health of the neighbourhoods and communities that we belong to, though it does. And part of the tragedy is that we keep looking in all the wrong places for the solution uh, to our anxiety. We get obsessed with control and certainty. Uh, we fly to fundamentalism, whether in religion or in gender politics or in food fads or whatever it might be, the belief that there's one thing, that one simple black-and-white certainty that we can hang on to. Uh, we flee to consumerism as though we can mask our anxiety by just buying more stuff and making ourselves feel more comfortable. Or perhaps we retreat into nostalgia, uh, just hankering after it time that we imagine in the past as better than this when we didn't feel so anxious and we like, we like nostalgia because we know we can deal with what we had in the past because we have dealt with it, we're not so sure about now. Well, all that's natural, but it all misses the point. It seems to me that if we're looking for a solution, uh, a way of breaking this uh, cycle of more fragmentation leading to more anxiety and more anxiety, of course, leading to more fragmentation because the more anxious you become, the more self-absorbed you tend to become uh, and the more antisocial. Uh, The way to break the cycle, it seems to me, can be captured in one very simple, rather old-fashioned word and that word is compassion. The subtitle of the new book is uh, Towards a More Compassionate, less anxious society. Now, before I describe how this works, uh, let me say what I mean by compassion. Because compassion often sounds like a very emotional term, as though we're talking about sort of bleeding hearts and do-gooders who experience compassion. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm not talking about our emotional state at all. What I'm talking about is the most sensible, the most rational response to our understanding of the nature of our species and the crisis that we're going through at the moment. It's a cool mental discipline that says because we're all in this thing together, because you're part of me and I'm part of you and we have our common humanity The only, and because we need communities to thrive, to function properly in order to protect and nurture us in the way I described. the only sensible way for us to live is in a spirit of kindness and respect uh, towards others. It's not about feeling affection towards others. We, we will feel affection towards those we love, towards friends, family members and, and, and occasional others, but it's not about affection. Compassion is just saying the only, the only way to live is in that, uh, in that committed, disciplined way of showing kindness and respect towards anyone we meet, especially the people we disagree with, especially the people we don't particularly like. Now, compassion of that kind has a double effect. It has a personal effect, of course, because compassion is the great antidote to anxiety. Once you shift your focus onto the needs of other people, away from your own self absorbed concerns, your anxiety levels may melt away but will certainly be reduced. Nothing steadies the emotions like the knowledge that someone else needs us. But compassion also, of course, has a social effect because it's like the high octane fuel that drives the machinery of social capital. It's, what, it's the ingredient that makes neighbourhoods and communities work. And I've used the word neighbourhood a number of times because it seems to me that the health of any nation, including ours, can best be measured by looking at the health of its local neighbourhoods. Our neighbourhoods are where we learn the discipline of compassion because neighbourhoods are the place where we have to learn to get along with people we didn't choose to live with. You might be one of those eccentric people who interviewed all the other people in the street before you bought a house or rented a flat. Uh, Most of us don't do that. Most of us like the house or the apartment and move in and then we discover we've got all these people living around us and some of them are strange. Well, they're all strange and they all think we're strange Uh, because that's how humans are. Anyone who's different from us seems strange, but maybe different religion or no religion, different ethnicity, different generation, different taste in music, all of those things, but they're our neighbours. And if this community is going to function, we don't have to become best friends with them and we don't have to like them. But we are obliged as citizens uh, to learn to be neighbourly towards those people. It seems to me if the neighbourhood isn't working, then society won't be working. Very easy to get along with our friends, but our neighbours are a particular category. Uh, now, it, it can be done. Um, and in fact, uh, before I'd, um, uh, after I'd finished the book, uh, I came across a study in America, uh, sorry, in England. Uh, by the way, when I say it can be done in, in, the, in the book, there is a chap- chapter in which I talk about nine or 10 different places around Australia, and you may live in one such place, uh, where people are making uh, the effort to introduce more compassion into the functioning of local communities. But this particular study intrigued me because it's a dramatic example of what I'm talking about. Um, uh, Some of you will know the town of Froome in Somerset in the UK, spelled F-R-O-M-E if you want to look this up on the net, but I'm assured that it's pronounced Froome. Uh, a GP in Froome, uh, three or four years ago, came to realise that many of the health issues that she was seeing in her patients, especially mental and emotional health issues, were related to the social isolation of those people. And she began to realise that Froom, being a typical western town, in the 21st century was a more socially fragmented place than it had been. So she got together with some of the local council, uh, some other uh, community and cultural leaders, and together they launched the Compassionate Froom Project. That's what they called it, the Compassionate Froom Project. It was launched in actually in 2013, a bit longer ago than I said. Um, and a three-year study of the effects of this uh, is now being published and what it demonstrates is that across most health indicators there's been a significant improvement uh, in the health of the people of Froom. but the most dramatic indicator perhaps the most surprising was that uh, emergency hospital admissions in that three-year period went down by 17 percent in Froom while across Somerset they went up by 28 percent and a local palliative care physician looking at all this said no other intervention on record has reduced emergency admissions across a population so what was this intervention what what did compassionate Froom ask the people of Froom to do well, it wasn't very amazing. They did form some little local community groups to help um, people on the margins who were having difficulty managing health problems or financial problems, but the main thrust of the Compassionate Froom project was, get to know your neighbours. Look out for people who are living alone. If you haven't seen them around for a while, go and knock on the door, make sure they're okay. Look out for people who need a bit of help. Look out for people who are at risk of social isolation. Uh, Get more engaged in local community activities. Join a choir or a community garden or a book club or go to um, current affairs discussions at your local library. Uh, uh, Join the men's shed, whatever, just join anything so that you are part of a network and you are more alert to what's going on in your community. And dramatic things like smile, and say hello when you pass someone in the street because that might be the person who at that moment is feeling a bit isolated or even excluded and just an acknowledgement, just a smile and a hello might have an instant therapeutic effect uh, for that person. Give people the gift of listening to them when they need to talk to you. Doesn't sound very dramatic, does it? But in three years, it turned out to be very dramatic in its health effects. And all that's saying is what we all really know because we are humans, that when people feel as though they belong somewhere, when they feel as though they are engaged with a functioning, particularly local community, their health in general and their mental health in particular is likely to be improved. Well it's easy to complain about the state of the nation. Uh, and I talked about all the ways that we might complain about it at the beginning of all this. It's not so easy, perhaps, to embrace the idea that the state of the nation does actually depend on the state of its local neighbourhoods, that the state of the nation starts in your street and my street, your apartment block, my apartment block. It's perhaps... uh, Important for us just to pause and I'll terminate uh, my remarks in a moment uh, and acknowledge that the character and the values of our society really are up to us. We do have a powerful effect on the kind of community we live in and the cumulative effect of all those uh, communities adds up to the state of the nation. So if you think people aren't as friendly as they once were, be more friendly. Uh, if you think people are avoiding eye contact in a way that they used not to, you would certainly think that if you walk down a Sydney street. Um, well, make sure you're the person who makes eye contact and does smile and does say hello. Uh, that you don't stand at a bus stop with someone you don't know and ignore them as if they're Martians, but you acknowledge that they're fellow humans. You don't know your neighbours? I hope you know your neighbours. If you don't know your neighbours, there is a way to solve that problem. It involves knocking on the door. And introducing yourself, become the kind of person who's always alert to the possibility that someone needs your help or attention. It seems to me that when I try to reimagine Australia, certainly I've got chapters in the book about all the things I've been talking about earlier politics, gender, employment, religion, education, etc. But above all, what I'm imagining is a place where compassion becomes our defining characteristic, where kindness and respect are taken for granted as the best way to treat each other, especially those we disagree with. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Has anybody got any questions? A question?
1: Questions or comments? Oh. Uh, doesn't, doesn't have to be a question, yes. Well, uh, this is a huge human challenge and we all have this experience of people we don't feel we can trust but they are still part of us. They are still part of our community. And maybe I'm naive. I am. (laughs) Maybe I'm idealistic. Yes, I am. But I do have enormous faith in the power of example. I do think that when we do act respectfully and refuse to have that Commitment to the discipline of compassion, kindness, respect, charity towards others um, we, we refuse to have that shaken by other people's bad be- our response to bad behavior is good behavior If our response to bad behavior is bad behavior well this is a downward spiral so even in the case of people we don 't trust that doesn't mean we have to abuse them or I- ignore them or act. Aggressively, let alone violently, towards them, it means we still treat them with respect because they're humans, even though we know I've, uh, I, I can't necessarily trust this person. There are plenty of people I know that I can't trust, uh, but that doesn't mean I uh, punch them in the nose. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yes. And I'm not. I'm not trying to be stupid about this. Of course. Of course, we, we do protect ourselves in the same way. You know, I'm not. A, I don't believe that, that everything we do has to be communal. We all need isolation. We all need solitude. We all need private space and and quiet time alone, etc. Um, and so yes, we do have to protect ourselves in situations like that. But it can be done with respect towards the other person. Uh, so that the, so that we are still however futile it might seem in a particular case we are still showing the example of how we think humans should treat each other yes Yes, could you hear the question? You probably should have used the mic. Uh, The question was, what should we do with our politicians, (laughs) in essence, uh, who treat each other in such an appalling way? Yes, Um, that's part of, I think that is part of why at this moment there is such um, distrust and disillusionment with politics that we see them behaving so badly towards each other uh, and, and making abusive, they can't resist attacking the other person even while they're trying to present their own policy. Uh, all of which adds up to the fact that, I mean, if you believe everything they're saying about each other, then we should hold all of them in contempt. <laughs> um, so that that's not a solution. But we are in a particularly rough patch at the moment. We haven't... Uh, I th- I can't recall a time when we've had... Uh, well, maybe maybe we did have a similar problem uh, in the uh, Rudd-Abbott election. Uh, but certainly now, in the uh, Short and Turnbull uh, contest, as as it's come down to, um, there is this sense of both leaders being deeply unpopular for various uh, different reasons, but, but the effect being uh, deeply unpopular, and us not having any particular faith in... The present government, or in the alternative government, now, here I go being naive again, but in the short term, I think this might be a good thing because it might convince us that our generally speaking our faith in leaders is misplaced, and the more we invest in leaders, the more discipline remember the huge investment in Kevin Rudd. In 2007, Remember the huge investment in Malcolm Turnbull, a sort of national sigh of relief when Turnbull displaced Abbott as Prime Minister and look at the huge and rapid disenchantment in the case of both Rudd and Turnbull arising partly from the overinvestment of faith in those leaders. So I think we, we're going through a period at the moment that might be very corrective for us, reminding us that actually... There are no messianic leaders, there are no magic wands, no, no leader is going to transform. We'd, we'd like to be a little more proud of them, a little more respectful towards them than we are. But the reason I say it might be a good thing, not just that it lowers our expectations to be a bit more realistic, but also because I think many people are now saying we've got to take matters into our own hands, um, by which I mean people are starting, and this is where I've devoted a chapter of the book to this, we people are starting to say we've got to if we think society should be different well we've got to start acting differently we we can actually make a difference here we can't make a national difference but if enough people are committed to living as if this is the kind of society we want it to be that's the kind of society it will become so so I, I think our despair should be translated into a determination to do things differently in our street, in our suburb, in our school, in our workplace, etc., um, and to be determined to say. From I mean, one one of the things that people very commonly say about politics at the moment is all about economics. You know, as though we're living in an economy, not a society. Well, we've got to insist ourselves in the way we live, that it's not always about the bottom line, that it is about building a better society, not a stronger economy. Of course we want a strong economy as well, but only because we need that to underpin a better society. Yes? Hi. Love the philosophy that you're uh, pushing. My question is about why should life be uh, more... uh, about uh, not just winning all the time. Not just? Winning. Why should or winning. we not yeah, be yes. winning yeah. as the primary goal? Yeah, yeah. Look, this is... Uh, thank you for that. Uh, it's a question that goes right to the heart of this in a way because the whole thing of winning, winning at all costs, we see it in politics, we see it in, politics, uh, we see it in uh, commercial life, uh, we see it in professional sport now, uh, that's a symptom of the era of uh, rampant and competitive individualism. Now, that's uh, that's unnatural for humans. What's natural for humans is to cooperate. Because we're a social species, like most birds, like most four-legged creatures, uh, it, it's our natural... Di- In fact, uh, an, uh, um, an Adelaide neuroscientist has recently said uh, that it's possible to find... The cooperative center in the human brain but there is no competitive center we learn to compete it's natural for us to go co- i mean we're, we're quick learners when it comes to competition if someone tells us that you're entitled to you know the spoils of victory and you're entitled to perpetual happiness okay well that sounds good um uh, and that's sort of anti it, it often seems as if there's a contest between uh, do you want to be rich and happy and winning, or do you want to be pathetic and sort of cooperative and loving and compassionate and everything? Uh, which is very sad, you know, like that's a, it's a narrative that's really shifted in Australia in the last 50 years. Um, so the, the win at all costs, I, I think we've got to, uh, again, s- starting locally uh, with kids, uh, with school sport and district sport, We've got to make it very clear to our children and our grandchildren, and our neighbours' children, that you know we we we're going to come and watch you play because we love watching footy or whatever you're playing. Uh, be nice to win because it feels good, but everyone has to lose sometimes, and we're here to see you enjoying the game. You know, we've got to start at that at that level, because the example they're getting from the pinnacles of professional sport are very negative examples. And I've heard many people say, I think it's absolutely true that the ball tampering uh, scandal in in South Africa was a symptom of us, not just that team Yes hello
0: um what are your thoughts about the way we listen to each other today in society? Do you think we really listen to the word the feelings behind the words
1: uh you've struck a struck an absolute chord with me with this question (laughs) i think we have become worse and worse at listening and there are many reasons for that one that relates even to the previous question because one of the outcomes of us feeling as if it is all about us and all about us winning and and us getting all the stuff we the competitive mindset is that we see we, we don't say all the other people in the room are competitors but we often act as if they are um, and that makes us less disposed to be compassionate one of the sure signs of compassion is that we listen and one of the sure signs of a compassion deficit is that we don't really listen that we just go through the motions you know uh-huh. Uh huh. the other thing that's working against I mean, our busyness works against listening. We all think we're too busy to stop and listen, especially if it's someone at the bus stop who's got a tale of woe that we... Have I really got time for this? Um, well, I think we'd better find time for it because that might be just the moment uh, that pulls that person back from the brink. Uh, also, of course, the information technology revolution has conditioned us to think that you can do everything in just a few words uh, and a quick response... uh, An emoji or two, and you know, on with the next thing. Uh, And we are, I I think this is a serious cultural problem for us because we are moving away from a full recognition of the fact that the only way, really, the only way human beings can communicate properly is by what you and I are doing now face to face in, in the same place. Uh, where you're not just getting the words, but you're getting the tone of voice, the rate of speech, the posture, the gestures, the facial expression, the ambience, all that stuff. That's all part of how we synthesise meaning out of an exchange. But when we're doing more and more on a screen, which is all very shorthand and very unnuanced, we're starting to transfer those habits into personal relationships as well. Um, I mean, you're not very vulnerable. When you're communicating with someone on a screen, you're not very vulnerable. You can keep your emotional distance. When you're having a proper conversation with someone and you're really listening to them, you are vulnerable because the, the absolute prerequisite for good listening is it's a very courageous thing. It is that you will be open to what you hear. You may run the risk of having to change your mind even in response to what you hear. Now, if we're not listening to that extent, then we're not listening really, we're not comprehensively, empathically listening at all.
2: Good evening, Hugh, and thank you for a very thoughtful talk. I have listened to you for a number of years and it's lovely to be here again. Thank you. My comment really is around media I think, that whilst I hear what you're saying, the examples of compassion very rarely get told us. Mm. And my feeling from you is there's an expectation that we will see it. But if we do not see it on a screen, if we do not hear it on the radio, if we have no models of it, where where are we going to Mm. to go? we, we can all go away tonight and practice yep. and maybe our street may be a little bit better but if the local paper doesn't pick it up and talk about these changes, mm. how is it going to spread? Mm.
1: Well, the local paper might start picking it up if they notice that there's a story or if someone actually launches the Compassionate Marion project uh, or does something... I've I've given some examples in the book of local communities that have started to take initiatives like uh, monthly gatherings in a local park for the people who live in a certain radius around the park who bring their own food and drink and have a picnic and now they're starting to uh, organise little bits of entertainment and people giving a talk about their favourite charity and so on. That's the sort of stuff that does make the local paper um, and, and there's a snowballing effect, I think. But we can't, generally speaking, I agree with you, we can't look to the mass media for this because the mass media, cu- I mean it's a curious aspect of human nature, that bad news sells. Um, and uh, I mean the, the sort of TV journalism cliche is, if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, the, uh, the lead item on the news, if, we, if we've got someone bleeding, that'll be the lead item on the news. Uh, and they do that because they know we all lap up all these appalling stories about uh, disasters of various kinds. We can't, can't get enough of them, which is very odd. I mean, it's another subject, really, what our media consumption habits. But, but they, they just want to maximise their audience, sell their newspapers, etc. They're in a commercial market. Um, so we shouldn't be looking to them for cultural leadership or for an example of how we should live. Some programs might show that, but generally speaking, news and current affairs won't show it. Um, so, uh, I, I really do encourage you to think. I mean, you said, "Well, we could make a difference in my street years, yeah, though." Well, that doesn't matter much. It matters enormously to all the people in that street, and that might spread. It might be that block. It might be that suburb. That that's the ripples do go out from uh, a more charitable. Uh, a more charitable disposition among a few key individuals. Uh, we're not going to have a revolution in Australia in, in response to the crisis that I've been outlining tonight because that's not our, not our style. Um, but we could have a soft, gradual... And, and In fact, most really significant social revolutions start with a tiny handful of people who see a problem and start addressing it where they are. And gradually it catches on.
0: Thanks very much, Hugh. Uh, I think my question may actually lead on from what you were just talking about. Um, You started talking about some of the major institutions that we have in Australia that are kind of failing us and um, concluded with this call to compassion, which I love the sound of. And and I'm wondering about the link that you see between the two, and I think you've started talking about that, but if you could make the link a little more explicit.
1: Yes. Thank you yes, I think the next the next ten or fifteen years are going to be fascinating in Australia. I wish I was still actively in the hands-on research business to be studying all this, but I'll be observing it with interest um, because I'm sure that the crisis that that we're now in we are going to we are going to tackle and it's going to be tackled at the local level and I'm sure that our loss of respect and esteem for institutions is going to lead to a change. To some extent, those institutions will try to change. I'm already, you know, we hear some of the banks saying, oh, we've changed all that as though, don't blame us for what we did. Uh, We got away with it for all those years, but now we're different. Um, As though, just forgive us. Um, uh, But I think when you look around the institutions, what you're likely to see, which is what we're seeing in relation to the mass media as well, uh, is people doing it themselves as an alternative. So in the ma- in the in the mass media, blogging uh, has really become a sort of a form of mass journalism, which for many people has taken over from their traditional news and current affairs consumption. Um, in the case of politics. Uh, we're seeing a fragmentation of the vote as people think, well, we don't really trust the traditional institutional parties anymore, Maybe, particularly in the Senate where we can make life difficult for a government. We might vote for one of these splinter parties even if we're not all that keen on them or don't believe everything they say, but it's a way of saying, well, let's, 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 let's challenge the institution. In the case of the church, uh, churches sharply declining attendance nine, 8 or 9% of Australians are now weekly church attenders about 15% once a month uh, so what's happening there's a, a thing called the house church movement which is uh, gathering great momentum and that's just groups of people meeting informally in someone's home instead of going to an established institutionalised church uh, I think in the financial area we'll see more and more return to mutual societies, credit unions, other more local, more informal, more genuine, genuinely collective, cooperative um, uh, alternatives to the major institutions. Those things will then no doubt turn into institutions and uh, the cycle might repeat itself but I think that, that there'll be that that kind of... Uh, it's part of what I was saying earlier about when we lose faith in politics, we think we better, we better tackle society ourselves, starting with where we live. I think across other institutions, even trade—you know, people no longer looking to trade unions to, f- to represent them, but happy to do their own negotiation within a particular organisation. Now we may not like all these trends, but I think they are inevitable responses to the loss of faith in the institutions.
2: We've
0: got our last question in the middle here. Thanks, Hugh. Thank this you. This is a quiet one, a uh,
1: quick one, because I think it's been answered um, by a lady over here asking the same. Throughout history, we've always had leaders yes. who were our heroes. And within the church, they've been heroes, our kings, queens, whoever. Yes.
2: What do young people do? As paradoxically, the more we become a global village, mm we're becoming, as you said, a lot more
1: fragmented. Is it Mm. necessary to have a hero or a leader as opposed to, you saying about a community at a base level, we don't Mm. kind of work like that? Well, um, I don't know whether it's necessary to have a hero, but mostly we do. People do generally admire someone, Nelson Mandela, Jesus, uh, Moses, uh, Alexander the Great, uh, out of history. Uh, Contemporarily, in in, in in living memory, I mean, we've had extraordinarily charismatic and powerful leaders like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, uh, but also Winston Churchill, you might say F.D. Roosevelt, you might say J.F. Kennedy. Um, uh, there have been some Australian... Uh, I mean, w- there's always this... If you look at the world stage at the moment... Many people would say one of the most effective leaders on the world stage right now is Angela Merkel, who is about the most uncharismatic leader. People who listen to her giving speeches say, it's not oratory, you know, it's soporific. You it, it, it can hardly, you know, people just nodding off, listening to her, and yet a really effective and highly respected uh, leader. So we're going through a funny period about leaders. We had Macron... Um, standing for let's break the nexus of the the two parties that have dominated French politics for 50 years, not only him for president but his party dominating uh, the Assembly. I I mean, unprecedented stuff, but already a huge drop in esteem from Macron in France because of the overinvestment which always happens. So when it comes to young people, it's it's. I mean, you can't generalise, of course, because there are so many variations, but broadly speaking, they certainly don't want to talk about political heroes. Uh, they might want to talk about cultural heroes and, and they might change their heroes quite rapidly. By cultural, I mean musicians and writers and performers and stand-up comics and <laughs> various other people who inspire them. Um, I remember doing some research on this now probably 20 years ago, uh, when even then people were saying, you know, who, who are the heroes? Who are the leaders? Who can you trust? And, uh, and I did this uh, study in which it emerged that when most people really thought about who they can trust, who they look up to, the typical r- response in the end was, my parents, uh, well, my mother. On that note, I'd better end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much, Hugh. Thank you for coming tonight. Please don't forget the cafe is still open and booked at North Adelaide here selling books too still. Just a small token of thank you. Thanks, Hugh. Thank you. We love having you here. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everyone.